Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Thank you. Thank you for your patience with me. I know we've had a couple of weeks off from the show. I was back on walkabout or really more accurately bike about um, cycling all across the western coast of Ireland. Um, and it was such an incredible place to visit so many amazing plants, so many amazing people. And along the way, I met two really incredible women that I wanted to introduce you to because the work that they're doing in sustainable agriculture is just incredibly impressive. So let me introduce them. First, we have Cindy O'Brien. Cindy is the founder of the only abalone farm in Ireland. It's called Abalone Connemara. Cindy has over 25 years of experience in working in aquaculture, and she has a marine biology degree from Cal State Long Beach, California, and spent six years doing um, research at an experimental fish hatchery at the University of Miami. Um, due to her experience and success in farming abalone from producing spat in her own hatchery to growing out in a recirculating aquaculture system, her experience is often sought after internationally by enterprises and research scientists setting up new aquaculture, aquaculture farms. Now, I first met Cindy through her daughter, Sinead, and the way that Sinead and I met was she actually gave me this incredible tour um, of part of the coast in, in, in Connemara, Ireland, where we explored the coastline organisms through a foraging exercise of tasting lots of really interesting plants and seaweeds. So let me tell you a bit about Sinead's background. Um, Sinead O'Brien is the founder and creator of the Mungo Murphy's Seaweed Company brand. She's a law graduate from the University College Dublin and the University of Amsterdam. Before she joined the farm, Sinead worked in the office of the parliamentary legal advisor in the houses of the Irish Parliament as a legal researcher. And during this time, she learned that the world of politics is extremely self-absorbed and often too slow to react to and plan for some of the really um, challenging aspects of the climate crisis that we all face. So uh, Sinead joined Cindy on the farm in 2018 as she felt that it was really important that Ireland should develop an environmentally and socially responsible aquaculture sector. And so it's great to see you both here. Um, I have so many great memories from my time visiting you and just um, cycling all around um, that region. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having us. And it was, it was great to meet you and your friends as well. I learned a lot from you guys also. <laughs> that was really cool. <laughs> So why don't we start by just an overview of what is aquaculture? How, what is this system all about? I might let Cindy answer that one since she's the expert on that. <laughs> okay, so aquaculture is the growing of something, okay? So whether it's marine or freshwater, it's, it's growing them in the water. Uh, and and you, you do it from seed or larvae to the final product. Um, some aquaculture farms will grow from, let's say, seed to uh, a juvenile, and then they sell off and others grow, you know, grow it on. Others actually grow from seed larvae to the, the final product for a market. So, and, and 
that's aquaculture, which is separate from fisheries because fisheries, you go out and you hunt for your food. You get a net or, or you, know, you dredge and, you know, you're taking that in. You're not considering the, the, um, the potential uh, life cycle of that animal or that species. Um, you could be taking it from um, a fish that are, you know, have loads of eggs and are ready to spawn. And therefore you're taking that out of the system and it's not having the potential to actually give back, you know, in the water. So um, huge difference between aquaculture and, and fisheries. Great. Yeah. So when you think of aquaculture, is this really a kind of, it's a kind of farming, right? Is, is, can aquaculture be a more sustainable solution um, to accessing seafood or are there, are there kind of arguments on both sides of the of, 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 of the balance? Because I know not all aquaculture is conducted in the same way. Well, not every species it can can be farmed. You know, there's going to be some species that are going to be easier to farm than others. But yes, it's similar to agriculture in that you are farming. You know, it, it's just another form of farming. The thing is that with aquaculture, especially marine aquaculture, you're not, um, let's say, susceptible to droughts. You know, like uh, if there's no fresh water, it's not going to affect a, a marine species in aquaculture. It's not going to, um, you know, hurt anything. You know, you can still grow them. And and the same with seaweeds. You know, it's you know you're you're still growing. There's there you can still eat them. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, that's that's my. That's <laughs> great. Well, I, I love that at the farm, I got to see a perspective of both, you know, a sustainable aquaculture system, but also the importance of foraging um, to the region. And I'm wondering, Shanae, can you tell us a little bit about wild edible seaweeds and the roles that those have played historically in Ireland's um, food systems? And then we'll move into the abalone because those are just really, really fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I, I dropped out there for a minute, but um, on the, the the wild, um, I only discovered them really through the farm because um, mom was, I'm get to that in a second, but she, she feeds uh, kelp, Laminaria digitata, to the abalone. And so as a teenager, my sisters and I were kind of tortured every winter by having to go down to the shore and collect the drift that was washed up after a storm to feed to the abalone. And so my treat uh, for, for that service um, was to take home a bag of seaweed for the bath. And so then I fell in love with seaweed just from the bath perspective. And it wasn't until I'd come back from Amsterdam that I suddenly, I, I don't even know what happened in Amsterdam. I think I'd met some people who were doing stuff with seaweed, um, using it in skincare, but also as food. And they were sourcing it from Connemara uh, which is exactly the region where our farm exists, or like mom's farm um, exists. Great. So she was finding these amazing seaweeds, not just in Connemara, but also um, in other locations. Cindy, tell us a little bit about how you use kelp for your abalone, or maybe I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Why don't we start by explaining what is an abalone? <laughs> what are okay. these creatures? An abalone is a gastropod. Actually, I'm just going to grab a shell right here. Sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, so here you go. Um, it's a gastropod. It's, it's um, you can see it there. It has just one. It's just one shell. Um, 
they, let's see what I'm looking for here. Um, there are males and females. Uh, they, their spawning season is during the uh, spring into summertime and, and with global warming now, water sea water temperatures are still just recently up to 15 degrees Celsius. So, you know, this is, we'll probably be able to spawn these guys even further on, you know, September, October. Um, so because there are males and females, uh, we have to fertilize the eggs in a, a small, we do bucket systems. So like, it's just uh, males in a bucket, females in a bunch of different buckets. We raise the temperature a little bit. The females begin to spawn through those holes. And then um, we fertilize the eggs. They hatch out and then they're swimming larvae for five days where we then settle them into a um, settlement tanks. And then they just graze on benthic diatoms, you know, for their first six months of their lives. So everything is natural. And then we wean them onto the seaweed. So the seaweed, uh, the laminaria, uh, we move them onto the laminaria. And when they, um, uh, when they move on, they have a little green lip right there, a little green lip, and you know they've moved on to the, the macroalgae. And at that point then, um, they remain on macroalgae for the rest of their, their little lives, which are anywhere between three and five years, depending on the size. And um, Depending on the market size, because they could yeah, live for longer yeah. if you let them. <laughs> but yeah, and so they're only fed seaweed. I had always made it a point that when we were setting up the farm, we wanted to be organic. I mean, in the past, I have seen other uh, farming methods and the use of certain chemicals uh, were some stuff that you wouldn't want to actually have in your food system. And it was only within the last, let's say, 10 years, finally, people started saying, look, we can't have this. We, this should not be the practice here. You know, antibiotics, um, malachite green because they wanted to make sure that your tanks were really nice and blue, you know, or or no algae growing on. When you look into the marine waters, you know, there's different types of algaes. There's all different things growing in there. You don't need to get rid of everything else to have a monoculture. You can have other things growing in your system. And they all actually work together. They all help each other. Seaweeds actually help the abalone sea cucumbers help the abalone and the abalone help the sea cucumbers you know there's there's all this um, everything's working together that's amazing um also Sinead showed us too these crazy response that sea cucumbers have to threats where they emit this web of kind of slimy material it's like a spider's web um but it's it's, it's fascinating how they how you have this very complex ecosystem within your aquaculture system. It's not just abalone, you have the seaweed, you have the sea cucumbers, it's all part of a living unit. And I also found it really fascinating how you bring the aquaculture onto land through a sustainable and energy sustainable system of water circulation. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the ways that water is circulated in, in these types of systems and the decisions that you made towards making this into a more energy efficient um, process. Okay, so um, when the system was set up, again, I didn't want to have it in the sea. I know that there were others that had cages in the sea and they had the abalone in there, but um, I wanted to have more control. There's not a lot of control when you have things, cages in the sea. There, things can happen, jellyfish blooms, anything can happen. 
So, and I can't drive a boat. <laughs> so I said, well, it has to be on land. So I, I see my, my tunnel with all the, the uh, research system as my, my ship. <laughs> and um, again, the research system, it actually helps. Um, you're not, the pumping costs are lower, you know, so you're, it's more efficient on energy. And we do have a wind turbine to, to help out. And eventually we'll get some PV um, yeah, solar panels too. And um, it, all to, we want it to be as efficient and organic, at, you know, in farming our abalone and other things that we can farm on, you know, on land in our tanks. So um, the water comes, pumps up from the, the sea, goes into our holding tank, and that's slowly fed into each one of our um, uh, research clusters, we, an aqua cluster, we call them. And then that water then is recirculated and it's oxygenating the water. Because an abalone is a, a benthic species, it doesn't need as much oxygen, let's say, as fish do. So it's already a good um, species to, to farm. You know, so, you know, in future, we will have to be looking at, uh, if they're going to be in research systems, looking at uh, species that um, don't need as much the oxygen um, and you know, we and actually maybe are are a little bit more um, have a higher value, and you know you can add more uh, add value to this as well. You know, in other products. Can I just add on the system that Mom has um, selected for her farm? Uh, while she did it, she chose it originally for convenience and because she didn't like going on a boat. Um, over time, what she's also found is that it's a very resilient system for the kind of environmental changes that we're experiencing out in the open sea. Um, so like the ocean acidification um, can be tackled on our farm by just adding calcium carbonate to the water and by also including the, the sea cucumbers into the system because the sea cucumbers naturally release calcium carbonate into the water. So it's kind of a nice little mini ecosystem that um, you can create there. And then also um, it gives you control if there, if there ever were to be um, a red tide or an algal bloom in the open, in the bay, for example, which thankfully we've never experienced yet, but it's, you know, it's something that happens all over the place. So it's something that we should be prepared for. Um, and so if that were to happen, you can just recycle the water until the coast is clear. So these are, these are I suppose, useful things to have um, for, the kind of the changes that we're experiencing now and going into the future. Yeah, this is, this is a really good point. I, I want to talk a little bit about climate resilience. And I think the Aroni is a great case study for this. So along, along um, in addition to me being on the trip, I had two amazing friends, um, Maria Fadiman and Suzanne Masters. Maria is from California and she remembered as a kid, people diving for abalone. This was something that was part of her food culture growing up in California. Um, but if I recall correctly, not all of the abalone species have the same temperature range that they can survive. Is this is this correct? Can you tell us a little bit about the different species of abalone that are found in different parts of the world? And what are some of the challenges um, to finding those species that are more resilient? Or how do you make the choice of which species are most suitable to your particular aquaculture system and your climate? And actually, we were quite lucky because that like we couldn't bring in any kind of abalone. There were two species of abalone that were brought in back in the late 70s. 
and that was the discus hanai, which is the Japanese species, and then the tuberculata, which is the, the European species. And um, it just turns out that the, the discus hanai, very similar to the, um, the oyster, the gigas oyster, is more resilient, can handle wider ranges of temperatures. So it can handle the colder temperatures, it can handle the warmer temperatures. And the, the discus hanai can handle temperatures up to 26 degrees Celsius. So it's actually very, very hardy. So um, you know, other species around, you know, you have the uh, the New Zealand pal and you have the uh, the South African, um, I think it's the midi, and uh, the, well, we have the Californian um, refusans, um, the red abalone, and all have had problems in the past. But that's again because of seawater temperatures warming. You know, the Australian one, they've had problems because some of this, the the species are more. Um, tidal you know so they're they're actually in tide pools and if for some unfortunate incident you have a a very hot um you know uh, period where the weather is just beating down on them and that water is just boiling up it's just going to cook the abalone they can't move fast enough there's no place for them to move because the tide has come out and they're just in these tide pools you're just you know, and this has happened. We actually did have someone come over to the farm who was working on this species of abalone in Australia, you know, and a lot of them are dying. You know, it's, it's, they're becoming uh, pretty much extinct at this point because they won't be able to survive that way. Um, others, if, if you're lucky enough to be in an area where your water temperatures are cool and and you know, don't get really, really hot. Then you know you can grow some of the species, such as the the Japanese species that we have, you know, on our farm. But one thing that we've learned um, just last winter from a group of Japanese visitors is that in Japan, the species that we have are now really endangered because the temperatures haven't dropped. I think below fifteen degrees Celsius over the last few years, and as a result, the kelp that the abalone would normally feed on is dying back. And so their source of food is not available anymore. So that's another factor. Like while abalone can maybe survive certain temperatures, if their food starts disappearing, that's a big problem. Yeah, that's a huge problem, a huge, huge yeah. problem. And, you know, something that we were talking about just before we started recording today was the news from the United Nations that we've now reached eight billion people on earth and counting, eight billion. And at the same time, we're facing increasing challenges from the climate crisis and from how these changing issues, especially in our oceans with acidification, with changing water temperatures are going to affect, you know, massive, massively these, these, these food providing ecosystems. So I wonder if we could just talk about that, like being experts in this field of, of food procurement, from marine environments what do you where do you see us going in the future and is there a way to correct course um in in the ways that we we um, are able to you know access foods from the sea that's well, a really I big wouldn't consider sorry, sorry. <laughs> can you cure world hunger on this episode <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say i wouldn't consider myself an expert but the way i i see things especially after this summer where you just have seen drought and heat waves 
all across the world, in Europe in particular, in Northern Europe, which was really surprising. Um, I think our whole food system that is dependent largely on agriculture, um, it, I just don't see how long that can last when you're dependent on so much fresh water, which is also really important to all of us for our survival to drink. Um, and so I would see, I suppose, marine, like aqua, marine aquaculture or mariculture as an, I don't want to say like a solution, but I suppose an alternative, um, or at least as a, a another angle that we can pursue to sort of um, stabilize food security um, while, you know, our whole, the way our whole food system has been built is kind of crumbling before our eyes. Um, but what concerns me in that respect is that, like, you know, we're a small farm. Uh, we're the only farm of our kind in the country. Um, you, I, I don't know how many land-based research aquaculture systems there are in Europe um, or globally. Like, it's, it's not something that has really taken off yet. And it's something that I, I would like to see more it's not that more research needs to be done. I think the technology has been around for a long time. It's just that it's always been easier and cheaper to put cages or nets in the sea. Um, but like as moms, but what, I, what I've seen from mom's farm is that it is resilient and that once you select the right species, um, you can produce food in a sustainable and reliable way. Um, so that's something that I think I'd like to, I'd be comforted if I saw more investment and just not even not even just investment, but just um, support from a bureaucratic angle as well, like just allowing these sort of farms to be established because that's a major obstacle. I mean, for mom, like one of the reasons I, I you know, I left my job in the Oireachtas and joined mom was because I just was so frustrated watching how like at every step she just had one obstacle after another to, to jump over. Um, that was completely artificial, you know, like, the, and the crazy thing, she just wanted to grow abalone and, you know, because it's just, you know, you'd swear you wanted to grow weed or something, like, it was, um, like, it's just such a simple thing, um, but that just was made overly complicated, and so, yeah, I'd like, I'd, I'd be comforted to see those kind of bureaucratic obstacles somewhat dismantled i'm not saying like get rid of all regulation but just like make it more approachable and i suppose accessible for people to establish these kind of farms because they're doable and i suppose the research and the technology exists it's just that the obstacles that are in the way yeah, yeah. well and the research shows too that abalone um are a great source of food maybe cindy can you tell us a little bit about the nutritional portfolio or profile of abalone well, uh, found. Uh, yeah, the, the abalone, um, there was some research done by Chagas, which is the the kind of the agricultural side of, of um, the Department of Food and Marine. And um, they had, uh, one of the researchers found that there were two kind of extra protein peptides in our, our abalone. Um, we don't know if it's over just over time due to the food, we, you know, just because of the seaweed, we don't know. But um, those two um, pro-peptides are good for um, fighting against um, high blood pressure and uh, uh, anti-clotting. And uh, there, so therefore, the abalone are considered a functional food. You know, you directly get the benefits from eating it. Um, 
the, again, high in protein. Um, so, you know, it's a good, healthy, it's, it's, I mean, two of a, let's say a seven centimeter abalone is equivalent to a six ounce piece of steak as far as protein is concerned. So, you know, you're, you're really, it's a good one to eat. You don't need a lot of it. And really, maybe we probably shouldn't be eating a lot of beef, you know, and we have to look at alternative proteins, you know, and yeah. this is one of them. That's mm -hmm. great. Yeah, I mean, I have a very kind of wild vision of the future of ag, which has, has emerged out of my, a lot out of my classroom setting where I teach a course on food and health. And, you know, I would love to see more land-based aquaculture. I'd love to see more um, biodiversity in our, in our agriculture, in our crops. Yeah. Um, but I'd also like to see more, I guess it would be called intimoculture of edible insects and the roles mm -hmm. that they may also fill in, 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 in protein. So I think there are a lot of examples of, of other um, food generation systems, like as you just explained, that may face additional bureaucratic hurdles because um, these are often led by small scale family owned farms. It's not yet in the big industry with the big lobbying power to kind of you know, make things a bit smoother. Um, mm -hmm. But I think as, as we as we explore ways to maintain a resilient food system in the face of climate change, these are definitely areas to explore um, and facilitate, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think there is movement happening on the seaweed side of things. So I know I got cut off there when I was talking about or getting into the, the native virus seaweeds. And I think, yeah, just getting back to that for a second, um, I was just really shocked at the time that I'd never learned about seaweed, like seaweeds being edible. Like you learn about seaweeds in school, in primary school, but nobody ever said like, oh, you can eat all of them. You know, <laughs> like it was something that I had to discover just from, you know, having Google, access to Google and mom and just putting it in my mouth and seeing, does it taste good? <laughs> so. yes, I love still that, that salad you made. I think it was a camel rack seaweed yes. with carrots yeah. and the light sesame. Oh, it was delicious. It was, it was, I wish I could, you know, recreate that here. I live far from the sea, unfortunately. That was, yeah, many different experimentations uh, resulted in that salad. But um, I think now that, I suppose it's it's getting on menus I suppose, with the help of the likes of I'm going to like call out Noma in Copenhagen. I think the chef there, Renee Redzepi, was really um, I, I want to say the, the start of seeing these kind of wild seaweeds on restaurant menus. And then that kind of spread into Ireland and other parts of the world as well. And so, yeah, Michelin star restaurants, kind of higher end restaurants started serving these seaweeds that, you know, our grandmothers, grandmothers would have grown up eating. Like it was kind of um, considered a poverty food by, amongst a lot of people, even still in Connemara. Like when I'm down on the shore picking um, channel drack, the local farmer that sees me just laughs and he's like, Do you, like that's animal food. <laughs> he doesn't consider it to be like edible for humans. Um, and so, yeah, I think now that we're starting to see more seaweed on menus, the EU is now considering uh, I suppose, yeah, looking at seaweeds as as a food food. It, it's, it's still considered a novel food, but I guess things have to be categorized as novel before they can then become fully integrated into the, the, the internal market. So <laughs> it, it is fascinating, though, this cycle that some of these foods have been labeled as famine foods or foods of hardship, foods when there was food scarcity. 
Um, you see this in many different cultures. I mean, places where I've traveled and worked where things that were, you know, used by grandma during times of that hard times when their crops weren't doing well, but now have, you know, become repopularized. And yet, unfortunately, the current generations don't necessarily know how to correctly identify those wild foods and how to prepare them safely. And, you know, just really, they don't often have the appreciation for how delicious they can be and how nutritious they can be. And so it's, it's this interesting cycle we see over and over again in different food systems. And, you know, Ireland is so well known for the great potato famine and the, the, the challenges of extreme food scarcity and famine. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, at the same time, you have these incredible resources right there available to you if you know how to identify them and how to, how to collect and eat them. Um, yeah. I guess the challenge is keeping those environments clean and safe too from, from environmental pollutants. Yeah. Clean. Yeah. Clean. Environmentally. Give me good, clean dirt. <laughs> that doesn't have, you know, heavy yeah. metals. <laughs> yeah. But that is, that's a big concern. Like just the EPA and um, the Environmental Protection Agency here in Ireland just yesterday came out with a report saying how degraded our waters are, whether it's, you know, rivers, lakes and seas. Um, just mainly from agricultural runoff, like from the fertilizers, um, but also, <laughs> this is not good advertising, but like from, um, you know, sewage as well, like the, the, the infrastructure just isn't up to standard and we're just polluting the environment. And so that's one of the things I like to get people down on the shore, eating seaweed from a, a place that I know is clean, um, and letting them say like, okay, look, you know, you guys could all eat this in your own towns and villages and just make sure that the water is clean. And if it's not clean, then you need to complain and demand that it gets clean because otherwise you don't get access to free food. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Free nutritious food. That's great. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's all about raising awareness. I think excitement about, about these food systems. Well, in addition yeah. to being super tasty, <laughs> And, and I love the different racks that we tasted. Um, you also um, have this seaweed company called Mungo Murphy. And one of the products that you create is a seaweed bath sachet, which I used during my oh, time. I have this great picture. I was actually in the tub with a glass of whiskey, and I have the whiskey with the, with the seaweed water, and they're the same color. And I'm like, aha, uh -huh, this is magic. <laughs> <laughs> other uses of, of, of seaweed that that um, that you guys have explored with your products um well yeah I suppose the bath was the first thing um, and so that was really inspired from my time foraging seaweed with mom to feed to the abalone um, and it was when I was living in Amsterdam I was suddenly away from the coastline that I grew up on and I didn't think that I would miss seaweed at all I really didn't expect to miss seaweed or the smell of it um, but when I was in Amsterdam, I was like, oh, I just, I would love a seaweed bath or just like the smell of that seaweed uh, right now. So when I came home, um, I, I had gained a respect for what mom was doing because I, I was kind of a brat of a teenager and didn't really respect <laughs> what mom was doing with her farm. And so I just kind of got, got into my head that um, I wanted to do something with seaweed. And so I said to mom, like, let's start a seaweed farm. And she said, well, let's work with the abalone first. <laughs> and so then um, I started thinking of other ways that we could use seaweed before 
kind of getting people to eat it because I, I recognized it was kind of a hard sell um, to get bizarrely to get Irish people to eat seaweed because it's something that they would associate with being something rotting on the beach kind of stinky sulfuric smell um, so I said okay well baths everyone can take a bath and like you don't have to put it in your mouth so it's, it's accessible in that sense um, and really just from my own experience the, the way it makes your skin feel so soft is just it's addictive to me anyway so that's a, a very simple uh, easy to use product the only I suppose the obstacle that I overcame there was that I guess at some point maybe during the Celtic Tiger years a lot of people got rid of their bathtubs and installed showers so <laughs> baths weren't so, so popular it was kind of more popular amongst older people who still had bathtubs um, but then I suppose we've grown into developing seaweed seasonings as well um, because one of the things that we were told by one of the uh, distributors that we uh, were working with is that chefs, well, we have a chef shortage in Ireland actually, and that's been exacerbated by, um, I suppose, the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and so they were looking for products that could like help restaurants to incorporate seaweed without the chef being very knowledgeable about seaweed. Um, and so we created these seaweed seasonings that you could just, you know, uh, mix into a sauce or um, sprinkle on top of chips or something, you know, just very, very easy. Um, and so that, that's been a nice one to work with actually, because it is helping to get seaweed into places that, you know, aren't Michelin star restaurants that are more casual or, you know, chipper type places. Um, so it just makes seaweed a lot more accessible to people. That's great. That's great. What's your favorite seaweed recipe? And I'm going to ask next Cindy about your favorite abalone recipe. <laughs> my favorite seaweed recipe is mom's seaweed uh, tempura, her sea lettuce tempura. That's my favorite. I got to taste that. I, it was it was beautiful. It's this bright green, vibrant tempura, like big, like it looks like big lettuce leaves, but mm -hmm. it was, yeah, that was delicious. But it has the perfect crunch. It's just such a satisfying taste. It's, it's yeah, it's yeah. my favorite. But bizarrely, so that seaweed I think is Ulva compressa. That's that's the species that grows um, in the wild around our farm. And so working with the researcher in the university in Galway, um, he kind of selected different strains that we can try and cultivate them using the wastewater from the abalone. And so he was saying that in Europe, the only Ulva that's kind of approved for consumption and exist in Europe. So this is this is the whole problem with, with seaweed in Europe is that like they, they kind of approve things that don't even grow here uh, while ignoring species that are here. So that's kind of something, another hurdle to overcome. But anyway, we'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how about the abalone, Cindy? Oh, the abalone, oh, there's a hundred different ways of cooking up an abalone. You know, you can put it in a batter, a, a, like a nori batter and just deep fry it just really quickly because it doesn't take long to, to cook an abalone. You can, you know, slice it really thin and have it on sushi. Um, my favorite way though is actually just slicing it and then just quickly cooking it in a very hot skillet. Um, that's that's my my favorite way. But there are, there, there are just so many ways of cooking an abalone. Yeah. I think, yeah, in Ireland, or I suppose in Europe even, abalone isn't really a known food. Um, because I don't know if we said at the beginning, but abalone aren't native to Ireland. Um, so I found 
I was in Hong Kong a few years ago and I had a steamed abalone and it was steamed with um, orange peel, ginger and a bit of soy sauce. And it was just so delicious. It was amazing. <laughs> so they know, like in, it was in Hong Kong and in China, they know how to cook abalone like they, and they have so many different ways of preparing it. Whereas we're, we do it very simply on the farm, but it's still, it's t it tastes good because I will add, because the abalone are fed seaweed, it tastes the way I imagine tasted abalone. Whereas like we meet Chinese people that come to the farm, they always tell us like, oh, in China, we have to cover it. I, like I remember the first time I heard that I really didn't understand until they tried the abalone and they asked me what did we what did we put on it and I said like literally nothing like we just flash cooked it in a hot skillet with a bit of oil and that was it and they couldn't they didn't believe us but it's because of the the diet that it actually it tastes the way it's supposed to taste yeah it's that whole cycle of, of food of, of, of how what you feed animals <laughs> leads to that final um flavor that's that's yeah. amazing it's amazing well one last thing i want to touch on before we wrap up and this is a theme i've asked a number of our of our female guests about and i think you have such a fantastic story of pioneering um marketing around your company i want to talk about mungo murphy <laughs> so for the audience that's listening only that's not tuning in mungo murphy is this um image of this kind of uh Frizzy haired, you know, um, old Irishman looking guy. And so when we booked our tour with Sinead, we were expecting Mungo. Where's Mungo? <laughs> the prototypical Irishman we're expecting a little red cap. Um, and there was such a great story behind this. And I think this is something that um, many women in, 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 that are interested in entrepreneurial um, endeavors may have before and I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about how you came up with this brand and 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 what it really meant for navigating business in, in Ireland. Mm, yeah so I remember it was again when I came back from Amsterdam and I was just I can't remember what obstacle at this point mom had to overcome but I would just kind of joke with mom and say oh like your life would just be so much easier if you were an Irish man. So then I just got the idea when I said that I was like, oh, maybe I'll just create an Irish man for the farm. <laughs> and so, um, I told my my now husband, but my boyfriend at the time was very good at drawing. And so I said, OK, Kevin, you need to draw a kind of rugged fisherman type character. He has to have hair like Rembrandt because we've, we've just been in Amsterdam. So there's lots of Rembrandt etchings all over the place. Um, he has to have a kind of uh, Aaron jumper um kind of yeah rough scraggly facial hair <laughs> and <laughs> a red hat because my favorite movie growing up was the life aquatic and i suppose mom's inspiration would have been jacques Cousteau as well so that's kind of a, a nod to that um and so yeah then the name mungo i don't know what, I, I pulled that out of a file that i had in my head for cat names probably <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, future cat names but it actually is a Scottish name. So then I was like, okay, well, Murphy is the most Irish name that exists. So, and it, the alliteration was nice as well. So I went for Mungo Murphy. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's been the character. And it's, it's funny, like, I remember in the early days, I, once I created him, people would call up saying like, oh, hi, is Mungo there? 
And it was just so easy to say like, oh, sorry, he's not here at the moment, but I'll just take a message and I'll get back to you. <laughs> but then eventually after a while, I'd have to kind of just confess and like say, sorry, he's fictional. <laughs> All right, it's a women-led business, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. We're just the the worker bees behind the man. <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I just, I just yeah. love that story so much. It, it cracked me up. Thank you. For <laughs> yeah, but it, it was. It's sad that it. it I felt it was necessary because, like, you know, yeah. I felt that, that if mom was an Irish man or even just a man, I don't yeah. think she yeah. would have had the same obstacle. And like, some of the obstacles are just crazy. Like. I won't get into all the details, but like, it's just unbelievable. So I just felt like really, you would not have had these issues if you were just a different gender. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm not changing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, where can we find out more about the Abalone Farm? Where can we find out more about the Seaweed Company? Um, are there uh, websites that folks can go to to check those out? Yeah, um, so my web, the website is www.mungomurphyseaweed.com or you can just Google Mungo Murphy Seaweed, that'll probably come up. Um, there's information about the abalone farm there and um, yeah, you can book tours through that website as well. And then C Cindy's um, website for the abalone farm is, I'll, I'll let you say that, Mom. <laughs> oh, it's just uh, www.abalone.ie. Um, yeah. Uh, it, Sinead is much better, so you're better off going on Sinead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell any any of the listeners, if you have any trips planned um, in the future to go to Ireland, and if you are going to Ireland, please, please, please don't just stop in Dublin. You've got to head west, head out to the Gale Talk region. This is where we have native Irish speakers. It's a beautiful, beautiful country around um, Connemara. And the port to get out to the Aran Islands, which are just magical. Um, I was able to visit um, Inishmore as well, um, right before coming to see you guys. And there, um, the Abalone Farm is, is you know, it's it's a bicycle ride or a car ride away from the ferry at Rossaville. Um, definitely check that out, and you can get a chance to um, not only get a taste of the sea through um, some of Sinead's amazing foraging lessons on edible seaweeds, but also see the farm and um, taste these um, really delicious, um, sustainably grown abalone. Yeah, great. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, well, thanks for having us. It was good fun for us too. <laughs> thank you very much. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also check out the video version of this episode where we'll have some amazing photos also posted um, of the abalone and of us out foraging for seaweed on the coastline. Um, thanks so much for listening. I also want to thank our producers, Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for pulling together a great show um, for you each week. And uh, yeah, stay healthy out there. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>